This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. Today is October the 6th. My name is John Dunn, and we are so glad you have joined us here for another episode. And this episode, if you're keeping count, is number 131. This week, we're talking about our mental health. And while we're not going to focus too much on the negative stuff, this is a difficult topic. And that means I do just want to offer a warning that there are going to be some themes discussed today that may be difficult for some to hear. The data around emotional well-being and animal welfare, what we do have, it's pretty bleak. We're a helping profession, and just as we see in other helping professions, the rate of suicide is very high. A study published in 2015 in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine showed the rate, the suicide rate, 5.3 for every million people who are doing the work. That's right up there with police officers. My colleague here at Best Friends, Liz Finch, she wrote a program spotlight piece that's on the Best Friends Network website right now. We'll have links in the show notes area on your podcast platform of choice. She talked to some experts and others about their experiences. The article has tons of great tips to help you with processing emotionally distressing events. Again, the link in the show notes on your podcast player. And don't forget, you can always find more information about each episode by visiting bestfriends.org slash podcast. Just click the link for the episode Again, this one is number 131. And on that website at bestfriends.org slash podcast, you can also find a picture and bio for our guest this week. And that guest is psychotherapist Elizabeth Fagan. Elizabeth, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. Um, Boy, where to begin? Well, how about we start with you? Uh, I believe you are a licensed clinical social worker. Correct. And you have worked with folks in animal welfare, right? Uh, Full disclosure, I guess we should say, you have done some work for the Best Friends staff in recent years, so you are familiar with our world and the struggles associated with it. Yeah, very familiar with it. I've been part of it myself and, you know, developed my mental health career, got trained in trauma, et cetera, et cetera, but I've also done a lot of the work on the side. So when Best Friends approached me about five years ago to do some work with them, I was really eager to do it. And as I've been working, I've just noticed a lot of trends, which which I'd known from my own experience, but that would happen in terms of compassion fatigue. And there's been so much research lately, too, on the effects of trauma, the effects of secondary trauma post 9-11. There were a lot of sort of technologies to deal with people being exposed to and witnessing suffering and trauma and things like that. So I started to combine, you know, my personal experience with the professional experience and this new, you know, kind of awareness we have to, to really try and help people that we're going through it all the time. Uh, so these issues, our mental health, providing support for folks working in the field, you know, these were issues prior to COVID, right? And then we had COVID. Now we, I guess we still have COVID, but we're somehow learning to live with COVID, I guess you say. And then we have the economy and just the world news. And of course, the things that are happening in our industry where everybody is very, very busy right now and shelters are full. So I guess you could say it is a tough time. It's a really tricky time. I think there was initially a lot of hope because a lot of the shelters were emptying out and people were all into fostering and a lot of people were, you know, seeing uh, companion animals differently. But man, you, you take the combination of the isolation that COVID has created the reentry to people, there's there's so much 
back history of grief and loss of, of things we're not even aware that we've lost. So you've got the isolation, you've got all of the change. I even if even if uh, COVID was like good for you, you know, in some ways, people will say they really liked it. We're still going back into a world that's that's changed. So yeah, it, it, it's tough times, and there aren't as many resources environmentally, emotionally, just to buoy us up. We're, we're pretty run down with the way things have been. Can we talk maybe just about some of the basic stuff here to start? I think when we talk about these topics, I probably to a fault just kind of assume that people know the basics, right? Know the basics of trauma, what it is, what it does to us, how to manage it. And I'm not sure how true that is. Maybe it's true. But either way, I think a good refresher for all of us. So what is trauma in terms of our work? where and what events are we likely to experience trauma? And then what does that trauma do to us? Sure. I think what's helpful here is the distinction between what people often call or used to call burnout. And that's sort of the repetitive doing of something over and over and over again, running out of energy, running out of resources. You know, there's this idea you invest a certain amount of energy into something and you get Um, something back from it. It's like a bank account, right? Put energy in, get something out. If you put energy in and you get less out just because it's going on over time, or you're seeing that the problem is bigger, then you're going to start to go into debt, right? And so we eventually can bankrupt ourselves in terms of energy, hope, passion, commitment, when we see that, you know, resources aren't there. And so that that's something that is um, a chronic cumulative thing. Against that, and on top of that, sometimes as well, we have trauma. And, you know, trauma is not clinically defined, but it's basically defined as um, overwhelming experiences that sort of supersede our capacity to process them. And it's distinct and different from whether it's trauma with a little T or trauma with with a big T. It's basically the body has an experience that it can't quite process emotionally, we often compartmentalize pieces of it in order to get into the fight or flight to kind of survive what it is that we're going through. And then later, those images or those emotions that have overwhelmed us at some point, it's almost like something happens to the organism that it can't fully take in, but yet it records all of it. So later on, we may have flashes of, you know, like almost like a slideshow of something that's happened. We may be ruminating and obsessing and thinking over and over again about a certain image, nightmares, you know, the the body, the nervous system stores traumatic memory differently. We learned this around 9-11 a lot. There was a a tremendous amount of research that got more public that the traumatic memory is stored separately and we, we can't access it the way we access a regular memory. So it will throw out to us different images and different feelings that we don't really understand. So, you know, if that makes good sense. So what the industry now is calling compassion fatigue, m- the most recent terminology that I'm hearing it used in that way, it, it's not that you're tired of, uh, it, it's that you're witnessing suffering and powerlessness over and over again that you can't do anything with, you can't process it. And it's, it's literally called secondary traumatic stress disorder. Um, so firefighters get that, you know, Police officers, first responders get that. It's sort of almost catching the trauma, uh, if you will, and having it go into you. You said post-traumatic stress disorder, which I think we're probably all familiar with, but you also said secondary traumatic stress disorder. What is that? Yes, post-traumatic is when the event is happening to you. The secondary, it's almost like secondhand smoke, 
is when you're witnessing trauma, when you're witnessing an animal that's been abused or is being euthanized and is still healthy or, you know, just the, the many horrible and horrific things that we're witnessing. That's secondary trauma. First responder gets to the scene. It didn't happen to them, but it's happening to them to witness it. And then you also mentioned trauma as big T and little t trauma. Again, sounds kind of obvious, but can you just explain the difference in the two? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes people are slow to label something uh, as traumatic. You know, it really definition traumatic is just uh, something that occurs that sort of overwhelms you and the nervous system in terms of processing and receiving it. And so big trauma is going to be sexual abuse or natural disaster or a car accident. Little trauma, you know, it's just more to validate that the small things that can happen that we feel powerless to intervene, we see helplessness, and we just can't materialize it. We just can't, we just can't digest it or process it. Okay, well, I guess uh, ready for the million dollar question, which is how do we fix this? Well, there are certain things we can do to help our emotional vulnerability. So one, we have the, the state that we're in. So that's the sort of starting place, our emotional vulnerability. What does that mean? Uh, that means we have to get enough sleep, get enough exercise, all that boring stuff that we all know and most of us don't do. And know that there we have to have some boundaries, have a certain level of detachment, if you will, so that we're not throwing ourselves into, into the abyss in some way. I guess this is something I usually talk about later, but you know, there's a difference between empathy and compassion. And a lot of times we talk about Empathy, empathy, if you will, is really putting yourself in the body or the shoes or the being of another creature. And it's actually very costly. It can help us know what to do, but it also sometimes we merge with another suffering or another's pain, a little bit on the assumption that we know exactly what that creature is experiencing, which we don't, um, but particularly in the animal world, right? Speaking for the voiceless. So there's a difference between sort of throwing ourselves in there and then this other thing that the, the Buddhists call compassionate witnessing. And that's where you are witnessing with an open heart and you are observing and you will, of course, will do something if you can, but you're not merging with the experience as much. So that's one thing in order to sort of shield yourself and protect yourself a little bit is to really work at not over identifying with the victimization and the voiceless, you know, a lot of people are, again, in terms of emotional vulnerability, there's a cumulative grief and sadness that happens in our work um, for all the things that we can't do. So to, to be aware of that and to also, and you'll hear people say this all the time, but how many of us do it, do it, look at the winds, you know, stay with the love, stay with what is feeling good to you, use that to counterbalance it. So there are many things we can do in terms of self-care that will better cushion us so that we are less vulnerable, right, to being to being so severely impacted. And then, of course, we're going to see stuff, right? And so the secondary trauma piece is a little bit more acute, right? So one is cumulative, wears us down, gives us thinner skin. And then the other one is, you know, we see something or, or things happen more unexpectedly. And in those cases, again, because of the way trauma is processed, it's really important that we find some way to debrief what has happened. And it can be as simple as, and this is a quick debrief, uh, sort of non-therapy seeking debrief, is getting a colleague and saying, I need to talk to you about what happened today. Do you have some time and can you listen? And you really, as if you're the colleague, you have to be also careful that you're not too burned out, that you really are in a space that you can listen to it. 
And then you want to sort of process the trauma, right? If trauma is stored in these chunked up fragmented ways, you want to talk about what happened. You want to be aware of what your feelings were. You want to be aware of what the sensations were. You want to talk about it in enough detail that you're experiencing it and feeling it. And the other person just needs to listen and say something validating, not jump in with their thing that they want to talk about or uh, offer solutions or something like that. But basically to say that sounds really difficult or I can imagine that, that, that you would feel that way. And in that way, it, we can start to metabolize what happened. So there's a fine line between talking about an incident over and over again. Can you believe what happened to me today? Like, this is what happened. And that's what, if you do that over and over and over again, you're activating your nervous system to keep reliving it. It is important to talk about it, but it is important to talk about it in a way that allows you some space and some room to have the feelings and then to allow your body and your nervous system to reset. So then you want to go do something nice for yourself. You want to go be in nature. You want to take a walk. You want to, you know, do something soothing, light a candle, um, have a ritual around that. I, I think this might be a good place to say that what happens a lot of times and the people that are the warriors, you know, out there do, doing a lot of the, the, the work and, and be it direct hands-on or, or advocacy, there's a toughness and a way to get through it. There's a strength, Right. And so there's a lot of shutdown that happens to get through it. And that's typical of trauma and crisis, right? We shut down, we deal with it, and then we've got the repercussions later. And I think it's important for people, you know, because if you're having feelings and you don't deal with them, they will come out sideways somewhere. And those are often the symptoms we see, right? We see the, the, the burnout, the irritability, the substance abuse, difficulty sleeping, you know, these kinds of things. So I think people get stuck in a either breaking down and getting overwhelmed and then they feel weak and unable and they shut down or they, you know, sort of uh, get up over it and get tough and go in there and keep working. And what I'm really calling for in terms of processing trauma, preventing burnout is some middle space in between where you have enough time to honor what you've been through, you know, feelings that are buried are buried alive. They will come back out somehow, somewhere, not to live in them and, and, and wallow in them, but to have the strength to allow yourself to have the feeling. I'm wondering your take on how we actually address this mm -hmm. in a larger sense. Mm -hmm. You mentioned talking to a colleague about something you know, you've know mm you -hmm. experienced, making sure your colleague is emotionally mm -hmm. able to be that support person, but we're in a world where we're all experiencing mm -hmm. these events. So mm -hmm. finding that person is probably maybe a rare thing. And I bet you're more mm -hmm. likely to get colleagues who themselves believe they are capable of being mm -hmm. the person who can help you because we're in a helping profession, but they themselves may be struggling as much mm -hmm. as anyone. And so even being that ear, just being that ear, right? They're adding on more to themselves. Mm -hmm. So I suppose one answer to that mm -hmm. is for the organization to provide the solutions, right? So stopping mm -hmm. this idea of we mm -hmm. should be solely supporting mm -hmm. each other somehow, mm -hmm. but the municipal shelters, the humane societies, private organizations, whatever, they're the ones asking the employee to perform this difficult work. Yeah. So at least to me, it makes sense that they should also be providing the support. I mean, listen, I can lean on a coworker, but because I know others are feeling the same way, experiencing the same things, somehow it like doesn't feel right to me to seek out coworkers in this way, you know, is it just ultimately making things right. internally more difficult because 
we're sharing all of these traumatic experiences with each other. So it's like we're all feeling all of the trauma. So I would say that, you know, my, my thing is that I think where possible, an organization should have a dedicated mental health professional and or, you know, there is a compassion fatigue coach, things like that, but a dedicated mental health professional to address one, I mean, at the very level, that that's ideal, right? That there's a program, that there's sort of a compassion fatigue program or, or you know, the other things that come up. A lot of the people drawn to animal welfare already have uh, pre-existing uh, sensitivities because of their own life experiences um, of being victimized. So it's a crowd that is often fueled by that passion, but but also then makes it very, them very vulnerable. So I think organizationally, there has to be a way to talk about it. Um, there has to be, I think, skills and tools and what we talk about in the industry, psychoeducation, you know, this is trauma, this is what it looks like. These are the symptoms. If you're experiencing this, these are some skills, right? This is how you can bring your nervous system down with breathing. This is how you can do thought stopping for the traumatic images that are popping up for you. This is how you know when it's time to take a break. Enforced PTO, absolutely. The nervous system needs time off to regulate itself complete time off. I think really classes, classes in setting boundaries, classes in, well, a community where people can, some, some way in which people can share what is going on and share solutions with each other. Um, there's a lot of isolation. It can't just be like a forum, like a Facebook page. That's not a good idea. But I think that it has to be you know, there's a lot of talk about resilience. And I think resilience is extremely important. And sometimes people who are really suffering get dropped by that word, because resilience sort of speaks to being strong and getting stronger. And people that are sort of down, I think need a little encouragement and education to be able to talk about it. So mostly the language, um, the language of psychoeducation, a department that specifically recognizes this leadership, recognizing it. Um, so you feel, sorry, Elizabeth, to butt in, but you feel that the employers do bear responsibility to provide resources then? Because I just want to clarify that I'm not trying to place blame or anything like that, but I know many of the subscribers to the podcast, they work in leadership positions and I'm trying to put myself in their shoes and listen, we're nonprofit professionals, right? We're municipal employees. We're not therapists. So I wonder, you know, do leaders in animal welfare, do, are we, do we really understand these issues enough to know what we should be doing to address it? But you do think it's on the employers to be providing tools and services. I think it's both. I think we got to give people the tools. I think we have to name it. <laughs> you know, they say in trauma, name it, claim it and tame it. Okay. So it has to be named by leadership. It has to be like acknowledged and then resources really ought to be given out within reason. But I really think that specialists who, who, who deal, there has to be some access to resources and specialists who deal with animal advocacy and trauma. There are very few people out there who do this work. So I, I think it's important for the, for the organizations to do it. Now, we're talking to a lot of shelters that don't have a lot of resources. So if it's just a flyer that goes up on the bulletin board, and I know everything's digital these days, but I'm still like old school in terms of visually seeing, are you burnt out? You can even have a box where people put their difficult experiences. They write it down. They put it in a box. They, not, not really even for anyone to read, but just to symbolize and to 
ritualize, you know, the letting go of a certain experience, something, you know, something that allows and recognizes, you know, what people are dealing with. And if you will, like a bit of a triage of, of people that, okay, here's the education around it. If the stuff we're showing you and giving you skills to help yourself with isn't working, here's someone that you can contact. Here's a group of people that you can look at. There are so many good trauma technologies out there, like eight or nine sort of shortish term trauma technologies. I don't think it's really reasonable to ask the organization to pay for a lot of those. That's pretty expensive stuff. But there's certainly some uh, for people that are really struggling and need more help, a referral basis in terms of being able to hook someone up with something that their insurance can cover. I suppose a good moment to say that health insurance shouldn't be optional if you're employing people in animal welfare. I mean, even in small organizations, health insurance absolutely should be offered, in my opinion anyway. That's John Dunn's opinion. Uh, you know, if you're going to hire someone, you've got to budget that in. You mentioned 9-11 earlier. Again, you tell me, but I'd be willing to bet that pretty much every police department in the country now has some kind of infrastructure to support officers when they go through traumatic events. Right. That's called a critical incident stress debriefing. Critical incident stress debriefing. It's interesting. I Something I would guess few, if any, animal welfare organizations do, you know, even though obviously we're doing some incredibly traumatic things in our, in our industry, Hurricane Ian, for example, even for folks who are not in Florida, who were not directly in the path of that hurricane in North Carolina and South Carolina, so many people have been involved around the country, working around the clock, coordinating transports. I mean, all of that has impact. Yes. And, you know, I can speak from experience, at least as far as emergency response goes. And I may have told the story before, but one of the very first things I did after I was hired at Best Friends was I went on an emergency response rescue out in the Nevada desert. It was one of the most horrible things I've ever done. And I very, very quickly realized that that type of work was not for me. I also work with folks who that type of work, that's their thing, you know? Right. I, it's almost like we sort of allow people to self-select. Like, you're going to go do this and great, you'll just deal with what comes with it, right? Glad you're up for it. We need you out there. But if this was like a fire department, we don't say to the firefighter who ran into a burning building today, well, you said you could do it. So thanks. No, we said, James, listen, man, you ran into a burning building today. Thank you. But we need to make sure you have all the tools available to you because we need you at your best because chances are we're going to need you to do that again. Right. And we know that that was not an easy thing to do. Yes, it is your job to run into burning buildings, but it is our responsibility, I think, to ensure that people are capable of doing these things, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally as well. You know, again, animal welfare workers, we're not firefighters, but at the end of the day, the studies show that our suicide rates are very similar. Well, I'm so glad you're bringing this up, John. I mean, when, when we were talking about this podcast, I was thinking, okay, so, you know, I, I usually bang the drum of like, okay, this is what you need to do as an individual to protect yourself against compassion fatigue. And you're really moving it more to the organizational level. And again, resources are always the issue, but absolutely. First responders in animal welfare are the same as first responders anywhere, are the same as childcare workers. They need a place to address and process the traumas that they're involved with and, and that they're witnessing. And I'm glad that you're focusing more on trauma rather than sort of the, the, the regular burnout stuff. I, I know that uh, absolutely they need these programs. The, the critical incident stress debriefings are actually relatively short. They are, you know, these p people get in a room and they talk about what happened and they 
there's a process in which it's witnessed and moved forward and, you know, actions are decided upon. And it is a way really to help people process these otherwise isolating experiences. Uh, And as you said, with the firefighters, I mean, typically the first responders, firefighters, military, obviously we're seeing, you know, the the sequelae of trauma all over the place. And that is a culture that says, you know, like suck it up, get in there, go do your thing and, and don't be a wuss. It's the sort of almost mandatory counseling that we have to get them into. Uh, there is one thing that that I have a colleague who does a lot of the these um, breathing exercises, and that's something that most people find acceptable, including military. You know, they'll they'll teach that to people who are uh, learning how to breathe to regulate their nervous system to to get out of fight or flight and 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 activate the parasympathetic. So that's a class that could be a mandatory thing for people that are going through it. But absolutely, there's. Um, there's so much going on. Well, healthcare is a very weird topic these days. I think uh, very political, unfortunately. Uh, but I hope that we can all agree that this type of support is really, really important. I get it. It's this is not a nanny state. We all still have individual responsibility. We still have to be able to have enough individual awareness to know when we need help and the maturity to step up and say, "I'm going to go get that help." But I really do think we need to put some onus on employers for this. Because again, just John Dunn's opinion, but it's a tool needed to do the job. You get a laptop, you get an ID badge, a uniform, a phone, whatever. Mental health services are just another tool that you need to do your work effectively. Built into the, the process. Absolutely built into the process. Well, maybe someday we'll get to that. But I, I suppose the fact that we are talking about it for a podcast, you know, if we were doing this 20 years ago it would probably be pretty weird to be doing a podcast 20 years ago, but we are able to have these conversations today that we weren't even a few years ago. And I think that says an awful lot about how far we've come in our knowledge of trauma and what it's doing to every person that works in animal welfare. Right. Right. I absolutely. And, um, yeah, I was supposed to speak at the Best Friends Conference, the one that got canceled for COVID, <laughs> um, sort of about preventing this. And again, it was more on the individual level. But I do think organizations can do a tremendous amount simply by acknowledging that this happens and giving resources, you know, for people to go and, and just normalize it. Normalize the, This is what happens. This is what happens to your body. This is, this is normal in the work that you do. Uh, we expect it. And here's what you can do about it. Can we talk about loss? Because I think so much of what we do, what we encounter, some of the most difficult stuff is the loss. And I mean that, of course, in terms of animals passing, you know, we lose animals in our care, but I don't even mean to death necessarily. Every day we're sending pets home with adopters. Sometimes those pets we grew very connected to. Those wonderful success stories we see where a dog or cat who had been at a shelter for a long time was a staff favorite that animal finally gets adopted. Happy days. But that's loss, right? I mean, that pet was there every morning in the office to greet me when I came in, and that pet's no longer there. (sighs) Yeah, it's the work of the heart, you know? And we have to remember that it is not up to us exclusively to save a given animal, we get them, they, 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 we are privileged for them to come into our lives. I have to remind myself this all the time as I have an aging dog. Um, we are pri- privileged for them to come into our lives and share their love with us. And we have to let them go. We have to let them go on to whatever their next is. And 
I, I think what I guess what I'm trying to say is not this thing, spiritual bypassing of like, oh, it's all good and whatever. It's real. You know, I, I do here want to make a distinction, though, between sadness and grief. Sadness is when you are letting go of something and you have a choice. So to allow a dog to go to a new home could make you very sad, right? You know, technically, if someone else sends it to another home, that's grief. That's something being taken away that you have no choice over. But I do think it's important to kind of to look at, at, at both of those things. And the process of grief is really to help us to come back to acceptance, not acceptance in the sense that it's okay with you. We do heart work and it hurts our heart and that's real. But that also can be reparative in a certain way of knowing that we did in our heart what was best for that animal. And I also am really big on rituals in terms of if you're saying goodbye to something, go home and plant a seed, like go home and light a candle, have some ritual, have something that you do, have a tree that you talk to, like have something bigger than you. This work requires a certain humility is that what I was trying to say before is that we're not really in charge of everything's destiny. And it is not all up to us to decide what is right for any given animal at any given time. So the humility is sort of like, it's an honor to be part of any animal's journey. And for that, we are brave and have lots of feelings. And for those we can't help, we have to trust that, you know, we we are not in charge. You know, we, we did not create the earth and we don't get to say who lives, who dies, who suffers, who doesn't. So in our field, Elizabeth, data is hugely important. We don't know what to fix if we don't know what's broken. And we don't know if what we're doing to fix it is working if we're not measuring it, which made me wonder, how can we track this? How can we track the health of our organization? I get we can do surveys we can measure employee happiness, engagement, maybe out of that, get some understanding of how the staff is doing, but how do we measure it in a way that allows leaders to know that what they're offering, the money they're spending, let's be honest, the budget they're putting towards helping in this area, that it's working. And I don't know, I suppose, how do we do it so it's not invasive? And I know it's crude and and I'm sorry to say it this way, but we can't just simply say, well, we didn't lose anyone last quarter. So what we're doing must be working. Well, it's a good question because uh, I've done employee assistance work for many years and uh, we always talk about utilization rates. You know, we're throwing all the resources at people. How are they using them? Are they using them? And again, it has to have an endorsement by leadership that this is an important part of the job. And so I think the way you would measure it would be, you know, you can do, it's subjective, right? You're going to do a burnout scale or do a, you know, uh, how many of you would say what you would say is a traumatic experience, right? Burnout scale, one to 10, where do you locate yourself? Did you seek resources? What were they? Did they help? I mean, that's more survey than, than, than a poll. But I think it would have to be very specific questions of, did you experience a trauma? Did you seek help for it? Seek help as in something that the organization is providing. And did it help? evidence-based, right? That's a very important word that we all use. It's still a subjective experience on a scale of one to 10, you know, how much, you know, did something help? Now in any population, you're always going to get a 10% that says nothing helped. Um, That's just sort of going to be that 10% or 20% in some other organizations, but we know about that. And, and we still, we want to ask information. We, We need to know not just if, but what, 
Okay, so I'm wondering how this is going to work, <laughs> but I want to try it if you're up for it, which is for you to lead a quick breathing exercise. You've mentioned breathing a couple of times now, so maybe a good thing for us all to do. Yeah. This will be a first for the Best Friends podcast, and I will caution everyone that if you're driving or doing something where this is not a good idea, maybe just listen now, do it again later, come back to the episode, do it with your eyes closed later. But yeah, Elizabeth, I would love for you to just take a couple minutes and walk us through some breathing. Lovely. So lovely. And, you know, as an intellectual person, I used to not be able to do breathing exercises because they felt too corny to me. And I now use them all the time anchoring people in my practice because we need it. So the one that I like to do is, and I'll give you a visual with it. It's, it's called paced breathing. You breathe in and you breathe out twice as long. You can breathe in two and you can breathe out four. You can breathe in one, you can breathe out two. It doesn't have to be the same ratio all the time. But this in and of itself is how animals and babies breathe and it will help turn the parasympathetic nervous system on. And what I like to do is if I'm breathing in two and I'm breathing out, I like to imagine the energy sort of starting at the top of my head, or you can imagine a light beam, if you will, or just your awareness is enough. And each time, so I breathe in, each time I breathe out, I have that beam come down a little bit lower. And then I breathe in, and then I breathe out, and it gets it sort of maybe down to my jaw. And I breathe in, and I breathe out, and it drops down, maybe down into my chest. And in this way, I work my way all the way down the body, through the tailbone, through the bottoms of the feet, and I ground myself. So it is breathing it's grounding, and it's being in the present moment, which is the only place that we can act. Okay, so why don't we do that? And let's do it for about 10 breaths. And let's just begin. And just breathe naturally, breathe in, and breathing out twice as long, focusing on the breath. And if your mind wanders, just bring it back to counting as you breathe in. And just breathe out twice as long. Maybe start to feel where your body's touching the ground or touching the chair. Breathing in and gathering. Breathing out and letting go. Sinking deeper. Just notice any sensations. And knowing that in your core, in your center, you're grounded and you're okay. Well, I have no idea what that's going to be like for folks to listen to, but I appreciate your willingness to give it a try because this is fast-paced work. We're always busy. There are always mouths to feed, emails to respond to, meetings to go to, but I think just taking a second to stop and breathe sometimes, it sounds so silly to have to remember to breathe, but just taking a breath really can make a huge difference. Just taking a breath and like slowing your actions, right? We want to move quickly in urgency and emotion. If you are, just take, a, just pick up the coffee mug slowly, just for 30 seconds, so your spirit can catch up with you. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Kim Clonch for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>